Good morning, Christ Bible Church. That's pretty good for nine in the morning. Uh, my name is Chuck Oldman. I'm a pastor here at the Christ Bible Church, and it's my privilege this morning to lead us in the study of God's Word. I haven't gotten a chance to do this for a while, so that grace we just sang about, you need to, to give to me in, in extra measure. Uh, this week, we'll begin our study of the book of Habakkuk. It's a, a short three-chapter book uh, buried in the likely much less traveled part of your Bible. Uh, luckily uh, for me and for you, it's included in this journal that we use for the book of Jonah. So if your Bible doesn't naturally open to Habakkuk when uh, you open it up, which is probably the case, you have it right here at your disposal. Uh, before we get started this morning, I'd like you to repeat after me, Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Very good. Uh, so now, even if you get nothing out of the sermon, you have done something that you likely have never done in your life before. You've said the word Habakkuk. You're prepared now to use it in casual conversations with your friends and, and loved ones over the next week. Uh, well done. As we, get, we begin this morning, I want to take just a few minutes, as I often do, and remind us of where we are in the big picture of things, in the, the placement of this story in the, in the story of the Bible, in the biblical narrative. Understanding the context of the passage is crucial to understanding and comprehending the meaning and application of the word to our lives today. So we'll look briefly at the gospel context, and then look at the historical context, and then the uh, geopolitical and the literary context as well. So where are we in the story? This story is, uh, you know, as you've heard me say before, we all believe that uh, life follows a storyline. We do it consciously or subconsciously. It's been said that you can only answer the question, uh, what am I to do, if you can actually answer the question that comes before that, which is, what story is it that I find myself a part of? Well, the biblical story is the one true story of all the stories, and it records the purposes of God in history and in our lives. So then where are we in this meta-narrative, in this, in this story? Well, it follows an arc, uh, which you've likely heard before, uh, creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. So creation begins in Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates everything and declares to be good. Rebellion begins in Genesis 3 where God's created beings uh, rebel against their creator. Uh, they did it then and we do it still today. Uh, but God in His great love promised a plan to bring His people back to Him. And that plan begins in the tail end of Genesis 3 and goes the whole way through the book of Malachi. Redemption promised. God fulfills that promise in the, in the man and God, the person of Jesus Christ, who uh, comes down and lives and uh, dies and is raised from the dead in answer to those, the promises of redemption that God made. That story is told in the Gospels. Then God establishes His church to continue to pursue uh, His lost sheep that, that they may know, that we may know, uh, Him who is eternal life. That's what we studied in the book of John not too long ago. Uh, that is us here now. That's where we are in that story. And then eventually he'll restore all things. Uh, the king will return, and we look forward to that. And that's the, largely in the book of Revelation. So uh, with that large, uh, big-picture context, let me just walk us quickly through uh, kind of historical pieces. If I could have the first slide, please. We have slides. So, so here we just talked about creation here in, in, uh, in this end of the spectrum. It's best to think of this in 500-year chunks, at least for me, so that the, as the story, redemption story unfolds, we have Abraham uh, right around 2000 B.C. 
uh, his uh, Isaac, Jacob, and the family after that. And then eventually we get to Moses after they're exiled. Moses is about 1500 BC or so. The Exodus, all those uh, things that happened to get them out of Egypt and on their journey to the promised land. Eventually they get there get, and set up shop uh, with the kings. Uh, David and Solomon, that's the next 500-year chunks, or about 1,000 B.C. now, at the height of the kingdom. And then about 500 B.C., actually, as we walk through this, David, then Solomon, then his son, uh, Rehoboam, and then the kingdom splits. So we have one kingdom, and then there ends up with ten tribes in the north, uh, commonly called Israel, two tribes in the south, uh, known as Judah. Uh, Israel, the northern tribe, eventually... Uh, through, because of idolatry and disobedience, they get shipped off to Assyria in 722 B.C. It says right here, never to be heard from again, actually. And then the southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer, and then they end up being uh, exiled to Babylon by the uh, Babylonians. And that's kind of where we are today. This red line is Habakkuk-ish, so that's right around uh, 610 B.C., somewhere in there, 620 and then, then comes the exile. And then if you were with us last year when we did Ezra and Nehemiah, the wonderful story is that those exiled people then return to the promised land in, uh, in about you know, 500-ish uh, through 400 B.C. And then there's 400 years of silence. The story uh, gets quiet. And then Jesus shows up as the promised redeemer. And then eventually he'll return. So that's kind of historically uh, where all those pieces land. Uh, next slide, please. So I want to take a focus now on this Habakkuk period and then and also just point out a couple other things. So we have, you won't be able to see all this, but that's okay. So this is the northern kingdom, Israel, and this is the southern kingdom, Judah. There's kings down here that it's not important. You can read at this point. But uh, Jonah, who we just finished, is about here. So Jonah is uh, 750 B.C., Rehoboam II, and he's in the northern kingdom, but prophesying to the city of Nineveh, if you remember that. And then uh, he's there for a while. Eventually, the northern kingdom, 722, gets hauled off uh, to Assyria. The southern kingdom, so in that, this whole period here, they're under Assyrian rule. The Assyrian empire actually runs much longer than this, but it closes out at uh, 605 B.C. And that's the time frame that we're in now. This is Habakkuk's time. And the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians and become the the world empire at the time. And I just want you to note here, this is a Josiah. You can't see the colors that well, but the good kings are in blue and the bad kings are in red. So Josiah is a blue king. He's a good guy. And he is actually the last of the good kings in the southern kingdom. After uh, his death in 609 BC, which is that line right here, more or less, uh, things get very bad. And then they get hauled off to to uh, Babylon. And so Habakkuk kind of bridges some of that. Habakkuk is right here, and he's in, it's really hard to tell exactly precisely where he lives, but he's a contemporary of Jeremiah, who is the wailing prophet, who is prophesying about how bad things are going to be and how the people need to let God take them off to uh, Babylon, which they don't do that well at. And Daniel's in that same time frame, uh, and then Ezekiel's just a little bit later. So that kind of sets you historically uh, where we are. Uh, and what you all been waiting for, the map. Next slide, please. So this is like the 40,000 foot view geographically. Just a couple things I want to show here. 
which they should have shown you when we did Jonah, but I'm the only guy that will do this. So, so here is the Middle East, if you would. Um, so here's Israel in here, Mesopotamia here, Nineveh is right here, and Babylon's down here. Tarshish is over here. It's like, if it's where they historically think it is, it's probably on the east coast of Spain. It's 2,500 miles away. So here's Jonah. I got to quick click this thing off because it doesn't come back on. But so Jonah is supposed to go to uh, Nineveh over here. Yeah, there we go. He's supposed to go over here, but he doesn't. He gets on a boat and heads that way until the whale spews him out on the shore and he ends up doing what God tells him to. Uh, the Chaldeans down here as well. Just note that because they'll show up in the in the story today. Next slide. So this is the 40,000 foot view. We'll drop down to 10,000 feet here, and I just want to point out just a few things. So again, here is the Chaldeans are down here below Ur. You can see uh, Babylon here. So Chaldeans are down here. Babylon, Nineveh, which is the capital of Syria. Uh, Carchemish up here off to the uh, west, and then Jerusalem. So I just want you to kind of feel where those are because we'll be visiting all those places here shortly. So in summary, Habakkuk is a prophet to the southern kingdom, to Judah, in that 600, 610 B.C. Uh, time frame. The wicked people that he is asking God to uh, deal with are the unrighteous leaders and the people of Judah. They are his people, and he's, uh, he wants God to deal with their unrighteousness. The main external threat in this time period has been the Assyrians for the past couple centuries, but that's about to shift in, as we're in this, in this uh, seam, if you would, in the history of the ancient Near East and it's about to become the Babylonians. So the book of Habakkuk itself, the book of Habakkuk itself, uh, like Jonah, is one of the 12 minor prophets. It's a very short book, three chapters, consisting of two questions and two answers. So Habakkuk questions God, God answers. They do that twice, chapters 1 and 2, and then there's a psalm uh, at the end, if you would, a hymn that can be sung. We won't sing it, but... Uh, that's where the coffee cup verses come from at the end. It's a great closure, but uh, we got uh, that's not what we're doing today. Uh, our text today covers Habakkuk's first question and answer in chapter 1. But before we do that, before we dive into today's passage, I just want you to consider this. One of the main reasons that we spend time studying the Word of God is to help us get to know Him. What is God like? Is He all-powerful? Is He good? Can I trust Him? Uh, A.W. Tozier rightfully pointed out in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what the Bible does in general, and what the book of Habakkuk does in particular, is answer that question. Help us understand that question, what is God like? If you remember a recent study of Jonah, the big question in that book was, will God show mercy to the wicked uh, and the wicked in that case were the, the inhabitants of Nineveh, where God sent him. Well, Habakkuk turns that question, oh, by the way, the, the, much to Jonah's dismay, the answer to that question was yes, God will show mercy on the wicked. But Habakkuk takes that question and turns it on its head. He says, will God judge the wicked people, uh, the unrighteous people of Judah? So listen for uh, God's answer to that question as we read the text this morning. So Habakkuk 1, 1 through 11. I'll read that, and then we'll dive in here. 
So this is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will you cry for help? And will you not, will I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and the justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose might is their God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the great God, the creator of all things. Lord, thank you that in your greatness you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your written word. Father, we pray this morning as we look at Habakkuk's story that you would inform our minds, but Lord, that you would also shape our hearts, that you would help us to love more and more the things that you love. Lord, help us to hate evil more and more just as you do. Father, make our hearts more in line with who you are and what you've done. Father, help us to see you clearly this morning, and I just pray that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do and would make us more like you. Father, we pray this, that all of these things may make much of your great name, for it's in that name we pray. Amen. All right, plan this morning. First, I just want to go briefly, briefly through the text, and then we'll go back and, and look at uh, a couple questions. One, what is Habakkuk's view of God? Does he see God as sovereign? Is God... A God that is just. And then uh, look at how that shapes our view of God today, if it does. Whether we ask the same or different questions as Habakkuk did. So into the text. Uh, we'll start with 1-1, amazingly enough. Uh, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So the, the, uh, the prophet's job in this day was to communicate God's word uh, to the people, to the leaders, to change their thinking and behavior, to help them more align with what God would have them be and do. So typically it went God, prophet, people, or God, prophet, king. Uh, that's not exactly what happened in Jonah, but that largely is what the prophet, uh, prophet's job is to do. Habakkuk, though, is different. It, uh, it is a more Job-like conversation. It's a Q&A between God and Habakkuk, and then with uh, a view of God there at the end. So it's, it's more like the end of the book of Job and conversing with God. That Hebrew word oracle uh, can mean pronouncement or burden. It has both of those uh, meanings. In this case, I think it, 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 in, a, in a sense, it, it means both. Uh, the prophet saw, the, you know, the Habakkuk saw, so it's probably a vision that, he's, that he needs to communicate. Uh, he received this revelation from God, and it was a burden to the prophet until he was able to unburden it by, letting, by releasing it to do 
what God would have his word do with his people, having to serve its God-ordained purpose. That's a, that's, that's a burden that the prophet felt until he unburdened himself, which is actually how I feel often when I'm preaching. So, uh, so that's the opener. That's the overall uh, one, one. And then the next section, two through four, is Habakkuk's a question to God. Um, and if you read it carefully, you'll see that it's, it's a very personal thing. Uh, this is the vertical piece where he's talking to God uh, specifically about their relationship. The words that Habakkuk uses are personal. He opens it with addressing God as the Lord, as Yahweh. So that's a very, it's the covenantal name for their God. So he's looking at this relationship they have with God. Uh, it, it's not a 911 call to a bank of operators who connect you with uh, the needed services. This is a highly personal plea from a greatly distressed person who, as you can tell by his language, is addressing a very personal God. Look at those first couple of verses. Uh, I cry for help, but you don't answer me. I, I, you. Uh, so it's, it's a question. It's a lament. Actually patterned after, um, or very similar to some laments in the Psalms. Uh, it's a prayer. It's his prayer to God. It sounds like Psalm 13, a Psalm of David, where David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So that's the initial part of the conversation. And then Habakkuk, uh, the next verses, uh, uh, verses 3, the end of 3 and 4, Habakkuk then describes the situation that he finds himself in, uh, the horizontal, if you would, just in case God missed what's going on. He wants to make sure God understands what it is that he's complaining about. It's a very graphic description, the, the wicked uh, are the, the righteous are surrounded by the wicked. There's violence, iniquity, wrong, destruction, strife, contention, uh, very negative words. And the result of all this is that there is no justice. The justice is perverted, uh, which is essentially the same thing. He uses the word paralyzed. He says the law is paralyzed. He means it's a, it's a, has that the word has a sense of the law is feeble. And because God is not enforcing his mandates, uh, the law is ineffective. Justice is bent out of shape. It's made crooked. Uh, so, so the wicked in this sense, and, and you probably didn't notice, and if you're drawn in your book, which you probably should be, make sure that, that now as we move on to, to uh, the next section, that the, the voice changes. It's a different person talking now. You don't, it's not clear in the text, but you can clearly see that Habakkuk is talking first, and now somebody else is talking. That somebody else is God. But as he lays this out, the, the, uh, the wicked that uh, Habakkuk is talking to, there's, no, there's some people who think, well, they're talking about the Assyrians or the Babylonians or somebody outside the nation of Israel. But the context itself would push us in a very different direction where we land, and that's that he's talking about his own people, about the Judites, about the leaders of the nation. So now that this unannounced transition in 5 through 11 now is God's response to Habakkuk's plea. Um, the short answer is in the first couple of verses, and God says, yes, I will judge the wicked. Um, and if you look at that at verse 5, it's, he says, look, look at, the, look at the nations, look, see, um, be amazed, be, be, uh, be wondered, be astounded. So, and all four of those are actually verbs, and all four of them are in the imperative. So God is commanding Habakkuk to look up, to look at the nations. I'm doing something big here. And if you really understood what I'm saying, you would be astounded. This is a big deal. Uh, I am answering your cries even as we speak. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, uh, the Babylonians, uh, t- 
to, to do this work for me. And we won't get into this till next week because it's actually the second exchange because this whole idea of using the Chaldeans is not a great idea for Habakkuk. He doesn't think that God, that this, but that's next week. But the, these words, the Chaldeans are actually a nomadic tribe that I showed you where they were on the map, and they actually eventually over time become the Babylonians in the core of the Babylonian Empire. So I'll use those words uh, interchangeably. So that's verses 5 and 6. And the rest of the, from the second half of 6 through the end of 11, is God telling uh, Habakkuk what these people are like, these Chaldeans. He talks about the warriors themselves, about their cavalry, their, cavalry, their horses and their horsemen, if you would. Uh, the countenance of the warriors in verses 9 and 10 all come for violence, all faces forward, very aggressive. Uh, they gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings. They laugh at fortresses. They go after what they want, and they take it. They are guilty men who uh, their might is their own God. They're very much uh, self-focused. They're self-focused. They're proud. They're aggressive warriors who are their own gods. Uh, I think one commentator puts this in a tight little nutshell. He says, these people, the Chaldeans, they bowed to no man and they listened to no God. And God says, this is the tool I'm going to use to answer your prayer. So then how does that, how does that exchange, that Q&A, how does that shape Habakkuk's view of God? Well, if uh, we could have the next slide up, please. Um, the real question here is, what did Habakkuk think God was like? Was God sovereign? Um, and I would offer that he would not have prayed, he would not have lamented like that to God if he didn't think God could, could do something about it. But I want to, you have to work with me on this. I, I would like to take this map and, and try to give you a graphic picture in your mind of what's going on here. So, once again, we, we're here down here. This is where the Chaldeans are. And then, and this is the year, this is 626 B.C. So in 626 B.C., the beginning of the Chaldean conquering of the Assyrians begins. Uh, at the same time, over in Jerusalem, the last good king, Josiah, is having a revival. He is actually, they've discovered the Bible again, they found the book, and they're doing all these things they hadn't done for decades, and the people are turning away from uh, following uh, people other than God, God's other than, and they're following God. It's, it's, the work has begun. So and that's about 622, so, so they're very close together. So they're in there re revivaling, and the Chaldeans are about to become the Babylonians and conquer the world. So picture like a big hand that starts down there in 626 in Babylon and just starts to sweep across the land there towards uh, uh, Carchemish. So 626, he does that. Fourteen years later, they go up in Nineveh. They capture Nineveh. So they've overrun Babylon already. They capture Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Syrian Empire. This would make Jonah happy, by the way, if he were alive, because this is what he really wanted. So uh, then they keep, they retrograde from Nineveh to Haran because they can't be in Nineveh anymore because they're conquered. So the Assyrians go to Haran in 609. And at that same time down here in Egypt, uh, Nico is starting his trek north because he's going to help the Assyrians fight the uh, Babylonians. So 609, that begins in Egypt, and they are actually uh, conquered in 609, and then that, that hand continues to sweep up towards Carchemish, which is the final battle. So Nico 
runs up to help him, and, and Josiah, the last good king, tries to stop him. And if you remember the story from Kings, this is where Josiah dies, because Necho, uh, the pharaoh of Egypt, kills him in battle. So last good king, gone. And now Necho continues. They, he combines with the remnants of the Assyrian army, because the Assyrian empire is basically gone now. And they rally together, and they fight uh, against the Babylonians, and they're destroyed. So at 605, that hand that sweeps across becomes a fist and crushes the last remaining uh, forces, and Babylon becomes the world power. That same hand then goes down from Carchemish down to Jerusalem, 605 now, plucks out Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Menego, and takes them to Babylon. And if you remember that story, that, that's a whole other book, but it's uh, so all those things fit together in that way. And I would offer that the Babylonians thought that hand was theirs, but it wasn't. That hand was the hand of God. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk saw that, and he knew that. He saw what God was doing. So Habakkuk is down there saying, God, where are you? And God is saying, I got this. I'm right here. So uh, is God sovereign? I would say that Habakkuk would say, yeah, I think he is. Uh, does he punish the wicked? That's sort of the next question. So he's, Habakkuk, exactly what he sees and doesn't see is not clear. We don't have a clear time frame. We know that it was likely after the demise of, uh, or as Judah goes downhill, which is after the death of Josiah, 609, but before the final battle there in 605. So somewhere in that four-year period is probably when Habakkuk is looking at this going, man, things are getting bad. God, please do something. Um, so does he punish the wicked? Well, just one more slide here, if I could. And I don't want to, I just want you to see, uh, next slide, please. I want you to see one thing on this. This is the same slide you saw before, but here's Hezekiah. Hezekiah is, the, he's a good king, he's a blue guy. But, and his prophet is Isaiah. You really, I didn't include him there. But so Hezekiah is about 100 years before this period that we're talking about. And here's Hezekiah's deal. He was a great king, if you remember the story. He was like Josiah. Actually, Josiah was like him since he followed him. But he instituted great reforms in the, in the whole country and did lots of uh, very great things to the nation, turned them towards God, started having Passover again. Um, and then he got sick. And he got really sick and he was going to die. And God said, you're going to die. And he said, no, 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 I don't want to die. Uh, please let me live longer. So God gave him 15 more years. Well, when he recovered from that sickness, uh, the Babylonians sent an envoy down to say, hey, Hezekiah, we're glad you're doing better, you know, just to, to greet him warmly. And so Hezekiah, being the gracious host that he was, said, well, let me show you around. So he showed him the, the stuff. So then the envoy left, and then Isaiah, now the prophet, talks to Hezekiah the king 100 years before uh, uh, Habakkuk. And he says, and Isaiah says, well, what'd you show him? And Hezekiah goes, oh, yeah, I kind of pretty much showed him everything. And then uh, this is 2 Kings 20, uh, verse 17. Isaiah says, behold, the days are coming. All the stuff that you showed him and everything in the temple, everything, all that stuff's going to end up in Babylon. And so, and this is, I mean, that, that would be a stretch at that point because Babylon is not even on the screen yet. But uh, and oh, by the way, some of your own sons will serve in Babylon as eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
So uh, that was the prophecy that was out there. And this stuff was starting to unfold before Habakkuk's eyes. He's sort of seeing that. And then if you move on to the other side of that, uh, so 100 years before was Isaiah. Now let's go to the book of Chronicles, which is looking back now on what happened in Habakkuk's time. And, and this is why God was executing justice against Judah. Uh, this is 2 Chronicles 36, verses 14 through 16. It's a very sad passage. Uh, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent his word persistently to them by messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lord, rose against his people until there was no remedy. Sad. So God is trying to get his people to turn around, and they continue to rebel against him, to worship other gods, to uh, pursue idols, and there's, it, God says there's no remedy except to execute judgment on them. And Habakkuk is watching all this. He knows Isaiah's prophecy. A hundred years before, he sees this unfolding and goes, is God sovereign? Yes. Is God, uh, is he, does he punish the wicked? Yeah, I mean, he's already seen the whole northern kingdom, Israel, be taken off to Assyria for their idolatry. So does God punish the wicked? Absolutely. So Habakkuk believed that God was sovereign over all creation. Habakkuk believed that God would punish the unjust. That's why he cried out. He knew God would do that. Habakkuk's real question wasn't, was not, God, can you do this? Because he clearly thought God could. But God, when will you do this? God, where are you? Well, I think that view of God that Habakkuk had is, it's, we ask that very same question today. We ask it about the war in Ukraine. We ask it about the mass shootings that are occurring in regularity in our country. We ask it about the murder of unborn children in our society today. We ask it about the violence in our cities, in our neighborhoods, about the tension in our homes, our families, our church, our marriages, our relationships. We look around and we say, God, where are you? Well, the, the answer he gives to us is the same answer that he gave to Habakkuk. He says, I am here. And if you look at, if you think through that whole picture of the giant hand sweeping through there, if you would, uh, the Babylonians were, were beginning their empire building. As they were doing that, Josiah was leading a revival. So you wouldn't think that this was about to happen. But jo and then so maybe 15 years later, Habakkuk is going, God, where are you? And God is saying, I was there. I'm already doing this. This plan is unfolding. I am here. I've been here all along. And just as Habakkuk could not see all of what God had done and was doing in response to his plea for justice. So we live, we live today in that same reality. But he is here. Uh, so in the midst of that, how, what do we do? How do we live? Well, two views here. One's the long game and one's the, the short game, if you would. There's the long game. I don't pretend to know how to fix all the brokenness that's in the world, but I do know this. It will be fixed. It will be made right. God will heal the brokenhearted. He will fix 
what is broken. He will make all things right. He will make all things new. But when? You know, just as Habakkuk lived between Isaiah's prophecy and its fulfillment, uh, we live between the already of Christ's incarnation and the not yet of his return. But we know how the story ends. Therefore, because we know how the story ends, we do not grieve as others do who have no hope. For we know that death and sorrow and pain and tears will all be vanquished and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But until then, we're in the in-between space. That's the long game. Until then, we trust in who God is, his character, his nature, his sovereignty, his mercy, his justice. As one pastor recently said, we do not ignore the pain around us because it is real, but so is God. So we run towards the brokenness in the world. We mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. We speak grace-filled truth into the difficult situations that, that are all around us. And we can do this because we have a God who does this for us. 1 Peter 5, 7, God tells us, cast all your anxieties on me, for I care about you. That's the God who is present with us. Uh, Isaiah 41, verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you in these difficult times. I will help you. I will uphold you in my victorious, in my righteous uh, right hand. That is the God who is with us. And then Lamentations 3, uh, 22 and 23 uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That was likely said by the prophet Jeremiah, a contemporary of Habakkuk, as he sat and watched his beloved temple, the temple of his Lord, uh, be completely destroyed and the walls around Jerusalem be completely burned down. But yet God is faithful in the midst of that. Great is thy faithfulness. So where does the power to live like that come from? I don't want to jump too far ahead and steal Paul's thunder next week, but in God's answer to Habakkuk's second question, um, he gives us the vector moving forward. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. We must believe that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he would do. That's what Habakkuk did, and that's what we must do as well. Habakkuk's faith was very much forward-looking, looking to what God was doing and eventually in the person of, of Jesus Christ. Ours looks back on that accomplished work of Christ, the work of his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. So, so we live by faith in the revealed nature of who our great God is. And we get to know who he is by spending time with him in his word, by marveling at who he is and what he's done by spending time talking to him in prayer, uh, by spending time with other followers of him, us here who are together on this journey, and by enduring the difficult times that, that he allows to come our way. So his word, his spirit, his people, his trials, those are the main formative elements of our hearts before God. And we trust that he will use those things to make us more like him for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who is present, 
Lord, like Habakkuk, for us it's hard sometimes to look at the world around us and to, uh, and to be able to say, yes, I know exactly what God is doing, because, Lord, we don't. We have questions, but, Lord, we know that you are present in our midst. And, Lord, we know that you use all these things together for your good. Lord, in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Just like Habakkuk, this was something that astounded him, Lord. Uh, we look forward to seeing how you work all these things out in your time. And Father, for now, we just rest. We Help us to do that more and more. Help us to be a people who rest in you, who remember you, who you are and what you've done, Father, that we might have our hearts formed in ways that love you more and more, that love others more and more, and bring glory to your name. Lord, please do that in our midst today. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.